I heard some philosophers speak uh, recently. Or there was a, it was a thing on the radio, and they were talking about uh, a philosophy that was, they were talking about identity and history. So the example that they used was, say you inherit a hammer from your grandfather, which actually I have. I have in my office. I have a hammer sitting there. It's from my grandfather. So now, what happens if at some point the handle breaks? So you go and you buy a new handle and you put the, you put the new handle in and uh, you begin using it. And then a little while later, um, one, of the, uh, one of the tines on the back end of the, of the, cl the claw hammer uh, breaks and, well, you've got to replace that too. Now you replace that on that. Is that still your grandfather's hammer? I mean, it has a story that connects it to him. This is the hammer I, I received from, from my grandfather, except I've replaced the handle in the head. Well, is it any, still it? How is it still connected? And so what happens, that, that's two pieces, right? And I think in that case, you kind of go, no, it's not, the, it's not the hammer from your grandfather. But what if, what if there are more pieces? And at what point, as you start to begin taking things away, if something that's more complex and more difficult, is it still the thing that it was, right? This past summer, some of you have seen when I'm, when I'm here, I have a mandolin. And actually this past summer, I, I actually inherited two mandolins from my other grandfather. And that came out of the blue because he's been dead several years and they were just cleaning out the house. And my uncle thought, Brian should have these because they're the musical family. Okay. But one of the, one of the mandolins, I'm not touching. Because he actually, on the back of it, it was, it's more of a historical record for me because he, he wrote his... Uh, the year was 1943, and, and in a pen, he scratched in the back 1943 and put his military insignia and all the places they went before they headed off to World War, uh, over to Europe for World War II. So that one's just going to go on a wall. But then there's another one from the 60s, and it's really, it's kind of a piece of crap mandolin, but it's fun. And, but it started to break, and so I, I fixed it. And then it broke some more, and I replaced some of the, I replaced the bridge. So it's and of course I replaced the strings, because 40-year-old strings really don't make any sound. So... What do I do with that, right? It, I think there, it's still my grandfather's mandolin with a couple modifications. But it's still his, you know? It's, that's, it has a story that I can connect to. Like the hammer has a story that I can connect, you know, you can connect back to the grandfather. My mandolin still has a story that it connects back to him, and it's still mostly that same instrument. What about the church? The church, we, we have this ability in the church. It is a, in some ways, a very complex organization. Not just like, one, we've, we've got so many different, I mean here, a church like Big C, not just the building, not just the congregation, not different denominations, but I mean like the whole church, the Big C church. What do we do? We have this natural sort of compulsion to, as time goes on, things shift and, and twist and different things get emphasized. You know, a couple weeks ago I talked about Reformation, uh, Martin Luther and the 95 Theses. He steps up because the Catholic Church was basically selling forgiveness. You know, 
at that point, when, when, at the point when they started selling indulgences to forgive people, you know, do you change that enough so that that's no longer the church? Martin Luther said, yeah, that's no longer the church. And he wanted it to be changed back. It's hard to change things back at those times. But if you look back, we get the, we get the reading from Jeremiah. And even before the church, God's people constantly had this ability, or maybe not ability, this tendency to constantly shift the church. Now, in a sense, that's a good thing, because the church should be able to, God's people should be able to respond to various things that pop up as history moves forward. God's people should be able to respond in some way to technology, to use it, to, to do it, whatnot, that didn't exist 5,000 years ago. But Jeremiah is now in the same place. Last week we talked about Isaiah. We talked about how Israel sat basically on the highway between the two superpowers, um, Assyria and or Babylon and Egypt. And things just kept going back and forth and they were always caught in the middle. Same, same historical setting. And Israel's people constantly were shifting the notion of the church. Or not the church, but of God's people. First, they were wandering nomads. Then God gave them a land to settle in. Well, then they wanted a king. Then they wanted a temple. Everything got more and more solidified, and God kept going, okay, okay. Although... He did say when they, when they said, we want a king. He said, why do you want a king? You see the king of the Gentiles, they just lorded over people and oppressed them. And, but he gave them it anyway. Now we have the prophets. Prophets are there to be precisely, in a sense, the memory of the people. Calling them back to a, to a more genuine existence. So imagine, right? Here it is. Jeremiah is standing in the temple gate. So, like, if you were walking in Heinz Chapel and there was the stereotypical soapbox preacher standing on the steps haranguing you as you came in, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Right? And launches into the notion of telling you to... to um, not just trust that you're coming to church, but calls for an amendment of life. We have this notion now in, I think, in churches that we are here for sort of spiritual help and not physical help. That when we're called to do stuff, we're called to um, uh, pray for people or to do sort of spiritual work, but eh, physical stuff is kind of, sort of. But then we get stories from Florida this week about um, Mr. Abbott, I think his name is, who's been arrested for feeding homeless people because the Fort Lauderdale has, a, has, a, has laws that say, um, they don't say that you can't feed homeless people but they have like very strict, like not within 500 feet of a residence. 
well, that, that's very limiting, you know, and, uh, you know, so he just goes out, he continues to go feed people. He's been arrested twice now because he goes out and he feeds people. He thinks it's wrong. He goes out, right? Jeremiah's words, if you act justly one with another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood, if you do not go other gods, Jeremiah's language here, not oppressing the orphan, the widow, and the alien, are really about very physical needs. The work of the church is beyond just making sure souls are in right relationship with God. There is a, there is a larger sense. Because when the when the governing authorities don't do the work or the system is set up so that there are just very bad inequalities, someone needs to step up to bring things together. We talk about the language of justification, being put in a right relationship with God. But it's not a just me and Jesus kind of conversation. To be put in a right relationship with God then means that we begin to hear God's good news for us and also seek it for others. And it's not just about salvation, but how do we live together in this world? The summation of all the law, as Jesus told us, is love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So we move forward seeking ways that we might show the love of God to our neighbors. It is like um, a house, right? And we have gutters on the house, and then we have the downspouts that bring the water. If, if God's love is the rain that falls upon the house and hits the gutters and it comes down into the downspout out onto the ground. To love God, there is no way to push that love back up the downspout. And the work that we are called to do is to spread that love around with others. This is, this is very key to, to the language of the church. It's not just to serve us within the church. It's not just to serve um, the people that we like, but it is meant to be a sign for those, even those at the very edges of our existence, on the edge of our society. We might visit folks in nursing homes. There used to be a very strong um, tradition of people going on, on Sundays to go visit their loved ones and relatives and folks in hospitals and in nursing homes, like on a Sunday afternoon. Having been a pastor, very few folks in nursing homes and hospitals get visited all that much anymore. There are ways to just be neighbors and to be and to show love for one another without necessarily um, an overarching spiritual um, plan, right? How do we open up 
and show love. We start with being friends with one another, being friendly to others. And so we don't, we don't go and hand out food um, in an effort to try and get people to make a decision for Jesus, but we go out to ha- hand out food because they're hungry. And maybe with a full belly, they might actually be able to hear the word of love to them from God over the growling of their stomachs. We are constantly called back to remember the point of the church, the, where we are called, what is our identity. As things change and change and change, um, we need to make sure that the thing that we are is still the church and not something else that might have a narrative that links us back, but really has become something fundamentally different. God calls us into a place, and he calls all of us, right? Jeremiah was a boy, a very young man. And God says, don't say that. I've put my words in your mouth, right? All of us are called by the virtue of our baptism, by the virtue of God coming, Christ saying to us, you are mine, setting that relationship right there in that moment, that we may hear our call, that all the places that we see broken relationships are places for us to enter into and bring healing and wholeness, even if in small amounts. Because, right, a meal served to a homeless person is not a lot. But it's, it's a start. It is a sign of what God is doing and will make full and ultimate in the end. Turn to the works of mercy, of clothing the naked, visiting the prisoners, um, feeding the hungry. All of those activities are ways, in, even in little ways, are ways for us to enter into the same work that God has been doing. As we've gone through this narrative lectionary, the, these arc of readings has started with creation, and we've seen the fall, but the overarching narrative is that God is relentless in pursuing us, pursuing humanity to the end, that all of those broken relationships may be made whole. Our risk, if we listen to Jeremiah, right, about running after other gods, about um, not dealing justly, about stealing and murdering, is not that God will abandon us, but that it is precisely the opposite, that in doing those things, we continue to abandon God and move farther and farther away. And so we have the prophets come and call out to us about God's constant pursuit and God's love for us, calling us back to who we are and whose we are. Who are we? We are God's beloved children, washed in the waters of baptism. We are fed at the table, continually nourished and strengthened by Christ's body and blood. That relationship isn't just something that happens. It's an ongoing thing. We continue to grow into that as we continue to grow into many of the relationships that we have. And a new life opens up for us. 
a healing, a, a, a life that brings healing and wholeness and peace that continues to point to God's activity as it shapes us and the world around us. Thanks be to God. Amen.